So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and sometimes interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I spoke about research and that kind of stuff, seemingly in a desperate attempt to avoid getting to the point which today's uh, episode brings me to. (laughs) Also, it's a valid subject and I found it interesting, but you know, uh, there can be more than one reason for doing a thing. See, today I feel kind of like a roller coaster ride that I've been ramping up, like the kind where, you know, it's just the very beginning of the ride is one big ramping up before you go way down and off to the races. Yeah, I feel like I'm just about to go over that first biggest hump, and I'm a little alarmed about what is to come next, which is something that I thought of at the earliest point of planning doing this podcast. It's me covering the 17, or I should say 16, because we've already covered Vo, the very first one, uh, the 16 to go short stories um, that make up the rest of the book with approximately one episode per story. The reason that's a little frightening is as of this recording, I have fully outlined the first third uh, where Vo is kind of finding herself and trying to be a big hero. And I have started the middle, but I have not finished. And I have a buffer on this show. I've got time, you know, uh, but yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Okay, enough putting things off, Oliver. Let's get into it. A uh, quick recap, because I haven't talked about story, uh, the story of the novel uh, for a little bit. This is Untitled Sword and Sorcery Novel, starring a big British kind of looking you know, red-haired woman from not the Shetland Islands, basically, uh, named Vo. And this is the story of her adventuring life over the course of about 15-ish years, from age 19 to 34, 35-ish. And it's split into thirds, which in turn all hold various numbers of short stories and one novella length sucker in the middle. If you haven't heard episode seven, that's where I actually straight up read the original short story called Vo that sparked this whole project and is currently serving as the very first chapter. So I'm only going to say she grew up on an island with two warring peoples, got over her bigotry to figure out a way to get off the island. And it was told from the perspective of a thief named Krog that she met from the other side of the island uh worked with but ultimately had to dump back into the ocean <laughs> uh, as uh, they were pulling away because Krog was a bit deceitful about their desires and so forth so you may wish to go back to episode seven and listen to me read you the story so you can know all the details off the dome but i must stress that is not necessary for today i always want you guys to be able to come into an episode cold maybe this is your first one if it is hello please listen to many more i love you <laughs> All right. The second story, the one that comes after the one I just blabbered about, is called The Woman Who Floated Through Time. For now, that's what I'm calling it. Anyway, was it the second story I wrote? Hell no. I wrote the, well, I wrote outlined. Let's be clear here. I'm talking about outlines. I have not written any pages, nor do I plan to write many, if any, until I have outlined the whole novel. But yeah, I outlined two and a half-ish, I guess you could say, stories before I got to this one. What they were were the big turning points, the end of the first act, first third, whatever, the end of the second act, third, whatever, which came before the end of the first, 
And then confusingly, I leapt to the very end, which currently has just got the holding title of Stairs. And I didn't finish that because I felt like, okay, I should write the rest of the book before I really solidify the ending. But I made kind of a list of goals and figured out roughly what I'm aiming for so that I can work toward it while outlining everything else. Between there and me outlining The Woman Who Floated Through Time, I also did a detailed breakdown of Vo as a character to get a better understanding of her, and I chose the stories that would go in the book and gave them a rough order. So coming into this, I had a clearer vision of the novel than ever before. That was probably one reason this story came together fairly easily for me, which was not the case with all of them, nor will it be for the ones I've yet to write, I'm sure. The other reason was that I already knew how it started and actually had an idea for a very different story back when I was only ever going to write Vaux short stories and sort of throw them out in the ether to get them published individually at various magazines. I had originally imagined that Vaux would be laying back in a small fishing boat. Uh, maybe fishing boat's misleading, eh? Like, not even a fishing boat, like, just a, like a life raft kind of sized thing. And... She is asleep and her arms are crossed. She kind of looks like an Arthurian legend type situation. You know, she's coming through the mists, but she's also actually like starving <laughs> and uh, dehydrated and all the rest because she has been at sea for we don't know how long after floating away from the island in the first story. And in my first idea for this, it was like, going to be this whole thing with a farm that deep, deep, deep beneath it had like a Lovecraftian god causing all kinds of worries. And there was a local lord who was kind of a jerk. But did he deserve to have a Cthulhu thing sicked on him? I don't know. Vo was going to get lost in the middle of that. And it was going to be kind of this big lesson of like, maybe morality isn't as black and white as the stories you were raised on Vo. Um, but I ended up putting that to the wayside. I, I kind of, it is fun, but it's not really what I wanted to do when I had a whole novel going on here, even though I do still want each story to stand alone on its own. And I feel this will with the same opening. So yeah, the current one did start also with Vo on that boat, uh, you know, half starved, half delirious, I'm probably asleep. In fact, I'm going to say, yeah, she starts off asleep or passed out. Is it hmm, uh, in a bad way? but floats to the mist until she goes dunk and hits the beach of presumably the mainland continent she was aiming for, but we as the reader do not know for sure at this point. And I think that works good as an uh, opening, even if you were just to pick the story out of the ether and start with that one, which is something I like, because like I say, even though these stories were not originally all written and sold over many years, like a lot of the short story collections that kind of were woven together into novels, sword and sorcery luminaries like Fritz Leiber and Michael Moorcock, I'm having a bit of fun pretending it was. <laughs> In terms of how I went about outlining this story, I already had kind of a template from what I had done with the final story of the first act, final story of the second act, some of the ending of the whole novel. And I am fine with the fact that I am working from a template-ish thing. Like I say template-ish because it's, it's kind of loose, like I'm not filling out a Mad Libs form or something. But I did have to come up with a structure for how I would do this because I've got 16 stories, well, 15 and a flippin' novella to figure out here, and I want to get it done before half past doomsday, which can be challenging when writing isn't your, you know, paying your bills. It's your full-time job. Did I mention I have a Patreon? <laughs> yeah, sorry, that was crass, but <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so I, I need a way to work that I don't have to keep wasting time and energy reinventing the wheel, as it were, but have room for invention, and so I've come up with what I'm doing here. What I do in this story, The Woman Who Floated Through Time, is roughly what I do for every story that chronologically I wrote after. And as I say, I was kind of figuring out on those hinge stories I mentioned before. So 
I'm also introducing that to you. And how does that template thing begin? Well, it begins with certainly the loosest part, which is me just writing down the, you know, what's off the top of my head, what do I have, which began with this image, and also of me just writing, so what is this story about? You know, I knew I had that image. And as far as who found Vo, who became the point of view person, because you may recall I mentioned the first third of the book at a minimum, I always want the point of view person to be somebody other than Vo, somebody who travels with her for however long, like Krog the Thief in the first story. So yeah, I have this image of Vo floating in on the boat, which, by the way, when the short story that began this whole thing ended more ambiguously with the kind of weaker ending I described in the very first episode of the podcast where Vo and Krog are on the boat just kind of like, gee, I wonder if we can get over our bigotry to go out into the wider world together. Haha. <laughs> um, this was my cheeky way of letting the reader know it didn't work out. <laughs> Krog got killed or thrown overboard or maybe fell overboard. Who knows? <laughs> I then had to figure out who that person was going to be, uh, the new Krog, <laughs> who was going to be the new POV person to travel there for a little bit. And at first, I imagined a commoner. Um, then on the day that I was writing this down in my little denim notebook, July 25th, 2020, I was like, mm, today I like the idea of a knight. But maybe we split the difference with a kind of a man at arms or some other commoner warrior, you know, foot soldier type. I wanted this person to be in awe of Vo because I wanted a new way of looking at Vo in this story, right? Last time it was a thief who at first thought she was a kind of a weirdo and then was like, oh my god, she's one of the people I've been raised from birth to hate. So it's generally not flattering and Vo is described as being brutish and other charming things that only gets worse when he realizes, oh, she's one of the people I hate. So I want the POV person to be in awe, maybe even attracted to her. And just to flip the script, let's make her a woman. Um, really, this story is Vo entering the world at large, as in the last story, you know, she left the isolated prison of the island. Honesty and truth set her free there. So what buys her entry here? How does this fish out of water grow legs and learn to breathe air? Well, I thought about that for a bit and then remembered that the whole, you know, two people trying really hard to cooperate and communicate, but having serious trouble with the latter thing can be great. And I think I want to play with that here. Perhaps the POV person then can be a woman watchman or man arms, you know, who mostly guards things, who's frustrated by their daily life. And they might be delighted to have a new potential ally. You know, like, yeah, Vo, Vo should seem like the answer to all her problems. Whether or not she is is another story. This is something the uh, woman arms, is that a term? Anyway, whatever, Man at Arms projects onto Vo. This would work nicely for Vo, who is very much wanting to be a hero. And what is a hero but a problem solver on legs? A provider of solutions. Cool. So, okay, we've got Vo, we've got the woman at arms. Who else do I want here? I think maybe I want a scholar or noble person. This comes out of the language issues I'm already predicting because I don't like the idea of Vo just showing up after having grown up on an island that has been isolated from the mainland for over 300 years and speaking perfect English or whatever the heck the language is on the mainland, even if the mainland is the place from which her people were originally banished. This is very much my Canadianism coming in here as I am thinking of Quebecois French and how it differs in many ways from Parisian French. And to the point that, I, if I remember correctly, it's been about 20 years since I heard this news tidbit uh, there used to be a cottage industry of Quebecois French studios um, dubbing and subbing North American stuff to then sell to distributors in France. And around 99, 2000, the distributors in France were like, 
no thank you, we we don't fully get what you're saying, which might be partly snobbishness. Who knows? Not me. I'm not great at French. But it's what I heard. True story. And it was on my mind when I was thinking about this story. I was also thinking about how ostensibly I speak English and some guy from 1700s England speaks English, but we would have a sometimes tricky time communicating. Even worse if we went back a little further to someone speaking like King's English or whatever it was from the 1300s. I could Google that and go back and record this bit, but I won't. So yeah, language has changed, certainly in isolation and certainly over centuries. So I'm thinking we also want a scholar slash noble, maybe priest, uh, somebody learned nearby who can tell us Vo is speaking the local tongue as it was approximately 300 years ago when it looks like all our communication problems are over he should get an arrow in the neck, signaling the assault by the locals or maybe opportunistic bandits or even the evil sorcerers, minions. What's going on here? <laughs> I'm just jabbing down stuff. I'm like, okay, I want, I got a smart guy to figure out the language thing and, and get that uh, information to the readers. And then I want a problem. And whoever the heck they are, these people that are the problem, they want whatever brought the noble scholar, let's say, here with their guard, including our POV character, and work crew. Yeah, the scholar just wants to, let's say, rediscover plumbing. Like maybe the main site of our story is a early medieval type archaeological dig site into what was once a surrogate or, you know, like the not Roman Empire um, who had plumbing, which in our history was certainly lost by the time we got into the Dark Ages. So, okay, we've got something big and plotty here that I find interesting, an archaeological dig site in a medieval setting with a noble scholar overseeing the thing. And amongst his guards, we have the woman at arms who is the person that finds Vo while she's sort of wandering around on her guard duty and maybe comes across Vo on the beach. Cool. And there's a mob of people who are somehow wanting to cause harm and mess up the archaeological dig. Maybe it's locals who dislike the colonial theft of their stuff? Could be, except that I think that Noble is probably from their nation. I don't see him being from super far away. So if that's the case, then what are they? Hmm, hmm, hmm. Well... We're continuing our language communication and stories motif and that we have the story of history and the language communication thing with Vo and Vo being found seemingly having wafted through time and the way she speaks and dresses and all that good stuff, which, by the way, me reviewing these notes made me think, oh yeah, Vo's clothes and armor would be all made in a sort of wonky off-model style from seemingly 300 years ago, which would only make her seem further displaced from time. And I might not have had that thought, or at least not had it so soon, if I hadn't had to review all this to talk about it here with you. So thank you for listening. You are straight up helping me make a better story. But yeah, what is the story about? I'm asking that way that English teachers sometimes drive kids nuts. They're like, oh, it's about a young girl and a guy who fall in love when they're teenagers and then they kill themselves. Yeah, but what's it about? And you're like, it's about a teenager. Anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, what is this story actually about? We've got some plotty stuff and some characters. Great. What's the, what's it about? Well, the woman at arms, she could be trying to learn or gain power from the past via Vo, right? She's trying to leverage, quote unquote, the past that way. All right. The scholar is doing the same via trying to rediscover plumbing. And maybe we have like a sorcerer who's trying to do the same by stealing the ancient wizard stuff uh, that he assumes the scholar is here to dig up. And on top of that, I rather like the idea of wizards using a previous, much more powerful wizard's names 
as their own aliases as a way to try and leech some of that power, which could be kind of fun because maybe this sorcerer who leads out some rabble in to cause trouble. There we go. Okay, it's coming together. Maybe they could use the name of the wizard who trapped those people and the people they were bickering with, to say the least, on that island all those centuries ago, which could be a fun red herring for Vo to chomp down on later in the story. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, so we're getting some theme here about how only the scholar is really trying to help the collective by discovering plumbing, while the woman at arms and the sorcerer are both trying to use past knowledge or whatever, use the past to advance themselves. Hmm. It's at this point that I start to feel a theme coming on. <laughs> Maybe it's altruism. Maybe it's um, how do we utilize the past? Huh? Well, we'll come back to that because at this point in the outlining, I wasn't really sure, but I felt like I had some nugget of something useful there and decided to run with it. Then I started thinking, coming back to language again, of course, what if the language the scholar uses to explain science, i.e. the science of plumbing, is heavily threaded with magical terms? And this is why the sorcerer interprets this as some kind of magical healing philosopher's stone, which in a sense plumbing is. <laughs> yeah, okay, that brought me to better refine this like central conflict, right? The pursuit of knowledge as a power for personal versus collective gain. Sorcerer is on personal side, scholar is on collective side. Awesome. Main cast, Vo, woman at arms, scholar and sorcerer. Great events. Um, the woman at arms is having quotidian problems as the least senior guard for the scholar's archaeological dig near the coast. Hmm. While engaged in the scut work of looking along the coastline for an ancient not roman sewage pipe outlet she sees vo float in through the mist ah all right it's coming together so then i figure what are the arcs right as in character arcs as in what did we learn <laughs> which before i get into that in detail i should mention is something i increasingly find myself questioning i do think people sometimes learn things because of events that happen in their lives and it changes them however i also think they frequently backslide or maybe events that you would think would teach people lessons don't <laughs> and you can still have an entertaining story if that's the case in fact i am frequently seeing very interesting posts on this matter by a great writer, artist, and illustrator named Sloan Leong, who I recommend you check out on Twitter as at Sloan Sloan. It's just Sloan twice. S-L-O-A-N-E. And then again, Sloan Sloan. Also the website, SloanSloan.com. Anyway, point is she, aside from doing some great work, which I myself have very much enjoyed, uh, is frequently posting about how she is fed up with the push for characters to always have to grow and change in stories and that it doesn't feel very true to life. Luckily, this is a sword and sorcery story. It doesn't have to be true to life. So, what are the arcs of my characters? <laughs> I mean, Vo in particular is 19, and if that's not an age where lived experiences help mold you as a person for who you'll be for the rest of your life, I don't know what is. So maybe Vo, who's been established as impatient in the previous story, but I'll want to nod to that here because I want the story to stand alone, maybe she needs to learn patience to really learn, mirroring the awful low-level sorcerer who's taken the name of the Great Wizard, isolated Vo and Krog's people long ago. Yeah, because I figured you know, the wizard, he's impatient, right? He wants power um, and so he just took some of the guy's name and wants to steal something that he assumes is magical power, never mind that it's actually poop pipes. Right, so in the span of this story uh, this could mean the patience to learn enough contemporary language to communicate with the woman at arms at a key moment 
Meanwhile, the sorcerer's impatience ultimately undoes him. Yeah, the outsiders need to learn patience, right? Vo and the sorcerer, while the locals, woman at arms and the scholar, need to learn better how to act. The woman at arms could also move from using knowledge for personal gain to collective good. She goes over from one side to the other of the whole, you know, dichotomy I got going on here. Nice. And what if the sorcerer, I just wrote a little side note here, was a prior and terrible student of the scholar? Nah, I don't know, maybe not. That sounds kind of neat. But then I'm thinking about the woman at arms, like she needs to act more. What, what, is, what is that? Uh, oh, maybe we can continue to have a little overlap here. Like how maybe the woman at arms and the sorcerer both want to be more important, right? Uh, finding Vo would bring the woman at arms prestige with her peers, which is something she wants as she is the lowest rung on the ladder. The sorcerer wants to be more important by way of power. And then I had this thought, what if the sorcerer had once been a burger? It's kind of a bourgeoisie medieval person with money and, and wealth and connections who is not a noble or a other kind of local merchant, and really it's their money that gets them the goons to raid the archaeological site with, and ideally steal the magic item, which again is poop pipes, which I really love calling poop pipes. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm feeling a bit juvenile this morning. <laughs> anyway, from here I did a bit more brainstorming, kind of fumbling my way towards figuring out what is the end of the story, and so, you know, I wrote down a few things I don't need to reread here, and then I talked about heroes. Yeah, the first third of this novel is all about Vo trying to be a hero, right? And so I wrote down like how heroism applies to the other stories I have planned. I mean, with Vo pretending to be a hero uh, with her alias of Starla there in the very first story, contrasted with the truth of Vo setting her free from the magic that trapped her and her peoples on the island. Then in the Hinge story for this, it's all about her finding out that mundane villains in power love the hero myth. Then over in the romance story, I know, I, want to I, I know I want to tell, you know, I want to talk about how a hero always stands apart from the community. So this story could be about how the pursuit of knowledge for communal benefit is heroic. And meanwhile, Vo is just a confused young woman with a knack for violence and a powerful desire for clean, direct, final resolution to life's sticky problems. The trajectory of the story could be that the woman at arms realizing this. Yeah, it could be it could be the, the arc could be, yeah, woman at arms realizing this, moving from hero worship of Vo to respectful hero worship of the communally minded scholar. The sorcerer, of course, is the bad academic who will contrast with the scholar. And the ultimate resolution of the story is the woman at arms seeing the sorcerer Vo and the scholar for who they really are. And maybe having proven herself see or have it pointed out to her who she really is. And of course, the reveal of what the dig was actually searching for and of how many lives it could save. I also like the idea of the woman at arms dedicating herself to bodyguarding the scholar who agrees to spend some time each night helping Vo update her language skills to prepare her for stories to come. <laughs> All right, at this point, I feel like the story is really coming together and now I can start hammering out some basics that I feel like I've answered in my fumbling beginnings of this thing, which remember I said it is kind of a template. <laughs> and this is the part where it gets a little more templatey, where I decide, okay, well, what are some nuts and bolts of the story in the sense of what is the perspective? Third person limited with the woman at arms, who is the POV. The tense will be passed as it will pretty much always be in this novel. I don't see it ever being anything else. 
the trajectory. Well, I've already figured out that roughly, you know, when I'm seeing Vo as hero and scholar as time waster, becomes unsure about both, then sees scholar as hero and Vo as someone who needs help. Everything in the story, I want it to propel us along this line, and I want to try, if I can, to imply the ending in the beginning. We'll see how that goes. The focus is the dig site, gaps in knowledge, woman at arms and the scholar, Vo and the sorcerer, the folly of easy answers, and impatience. All right? Theme, well, we've got a few. Knowledge, patience, the past and future, okay? But what's the thematic statement? What am I saying with this story? What is it kind of arguing? It's arguing the thematic statement. It's better to seek knowledge for the collective good than to hoard it for personal gain. All right, that all feels good to me. I feel like, okay, that's figured out. Now for another thing that can feel template-y, but really it's more like writing prompty. You know, I've mentioned before Ursula K. Le Guin's excellent book, Steering the Craft. Uh, I really recommend it for anybody who's already done some writing and wants to polish their craft. Uh, yeah, one thing that she has is a list of stuff that is important in a story that is not conflict. Uh, because, yeah, we have a tendency in Western society to reduce all stories to conflict, and that is not all of life. She also points out there is relating to someone or something, finding, losing, Bearing, like bearing of great weight of some kind, discovering, parting, and changing. So what I did was I wrote those down, gave them each a line in my notebook, and then kind of left them open, thought about what I had already figured out so far, and then in pencil, in case I changed my mind later, I would put in like under finding. Well, there's finding of the pipe, and there's finding Vo at the beginning. And these are moments, you know, that matter. There's relating, like Vo and the woman at arms. I figure maybe they should relate over food. Uh, I think that's something that, you know, even if you have language difficulties, you can always communicate over. And certainly the cornerstone of many a food show that's ever been made. And so on. Point is, I didn't then, you know, make this list and be like, oh, how can I jam in every single one? And if I don't put in all of the relating, finding, losing, burying, discovering, parting, and changing things, then the story's incomplete. Ah, it's more like I put in what I thought of that fit in each of them. And lucky me, I've got something here for everything except losing. Um, and by doing that, I think to myself, oh good, so this feels like I've got a varied story that isn't just people shouting and swinging swords at each other. Therefore, I hope it has a more rich, deep emotional palette for the reader to enjoy. And potentially be hooked by, right? Because maybe someone doesn't give much of a hoot about the sword fights, but they love getting to know the characters through moments where they are relating to each other. Okay, so now I've figured out some of the like settings <laughs> for my story, perspective, tense, point of view, and so on. And I've tried to check it to make sure it's not got a mono-focus on conflict. Cool. So it's at this point that I spend a couple of pages, which I'm not going to read here, just being like, okay, what are more specific beats? What are the specific moments, you know, that happen in the thing? In roughly what order they come out. So I figure those out in detail. From the woman at arms finding Vo on the beach, or maybe even starting with her alone, wandering the coast, annoyed, ruminating on disrespect from her fellow soldiers. And yeah, so I figured a bunch of that stuff through to the rough end, which I'll come back to. And I realize, okay, I think I know the story. I think I know what it's about. I think I know what I need from the woman at arms, our POV person. And I sit down to do a character breakdown, much like I did for Vo which, if you haven't heard it, is in episode two. So I begin with some simple things like a name, which I actually don't settle till much later, but for now I'm calling her Marguerite. So Marguerite, woman at arms, and I figure she's not much older than Vo. she's 23, ethnicity, uh, Western European-ish, let's say, Caucasian, uh, hair, black, short, eyes, 
Brown figure. I don't know why. I just I think of her as being kind of stocky, average height, stubby fingers, large feet, <laughs> maybe a slight second chin with a long face and a big closed mouthed smile. I like that. I consider it a dusting of freckles, but Vo has that going on as well. So hmm. then again, they are essentially of the same people. Vo was just split off from the continent 300 years ago. Well, her ancestors were. <laughs> Then I do what I always do after those kind of just basics, which is I write, you know, what do I know off the dome about this person? Well, she's patient. She's quote unquote working class, uh, basically a surf. <laughs> um, I found over the course of my notes of the previous couple of pages that I saw her as being kind of a, a butch lesbian with a wife waiting for her back home, uh, that she doesn't get the respect she feels she deserves and is being kept in the dark about the true nature of the dig. You know, I should mention, I don't generally imagine celebrities or friends of mine or anybody really that I'm familiar with when I create characters. They're sort of fuzzier in my head and I can tend to just kind of assemble something out of bits and pieces, I guess. But it has just occurred to me now that if you wanted a visual shorthand for this character, you could maybe think of Leah Delaria, who played Big Boo on Orange is the New Black. But, you know, wearing like uh, padded armor with chain underneath and carrying a halberd and wearing a helmet or something like that. Right, after putting down what I know off the top of my head from all the brainstorming and so on that's come thus far, I worked through a series of items that I've chosen out of a book called Creating Unforgettable Characters by Linda Seeger, which has, generally speaking, served me well. Again, this is more about writing prompts than a template you fill out and voila, that is a complete character. <laughs> And so very quickly, those are the paradox, maybe something about the character that is contrary to what you first get as their nature and their emotions, their attitudes, their values, some details, which generally speaking are like little things about how they carry themselves or appear often rooted in weaknesses or flaws. It's things that make them kind of interesting in that regard. A little bit of backstory, just enough to, you know, so you know who they are. A um, bit of their psychology, you know, what was their family life like as they were a kid and how did it shape them, that kind of thing. And if there's anything to be said about it, their religious situation. Now, this took some thinking on my part, but I'm going to rattle through much quicker than it took me to figure it out to give you the gist. Um, the paradox, I like the idea of her being, well, essentially a watchman, right? She guards others and their possessions with eyes like a hawk, but maybe she pays next to no attention to her own possessions, often losing them to theft or thoughtlessness. So yeah, that could be also why like some of the other guards don't really respect her and she's bottom of the pecking order. She could also have like tunnel vision mentality, missing anything outside of her focal point. As far as emotions that we deal with here, I figure, you know, stoic, resolved, kind of alone and lonely, her wife is far away, lacking greater purpose, underappreciated, not really one to get mad, maybe even more more like just a little sad about her whole situation, hence her looking for solutions, hence her going, oh boy, uh, what looks like a mighty hero has floated through the mist. <laughs> Given that she sees Vo floating in on the boat as an opportunity, I thought maybe I could make that one of her big attitudes, you know, like, you keep an eye out for opportunity in this life, acting only when absolutely sure, but when you act, you go for it with everything you've got. You know, <laughs> maybe that's her her attitude in life and part of why she seems to not act most of the time because she's waiting for the right moment, which, of course, can be a lie we tell ourselves to excuse inaction. So hmm. I also kind of figured something that someone who does her job might have as an attitude is that, you know, bandits are like weather. You know, they can ruin your life, but aren't worth getting mad about. They're, they just happen. They're part of the job. And maybe as long as she returns to her wife with a heart full of love, what does it matter who she kisses? Huh. 
yeah, maybe maybe this is a little issue with her. <laughs> She's not great about fidelity, which is funny because that actually brings me back again to thinking about the character of Big Boo from Orange is the New Black. As for her values, well, I would definitely say if she's going to have the reaction that she does to Vo floating on in of, oh my goodness, a hero, this is really important, I will bring her back and this will bring me prestige, you know, then maybe she values people who stand out from the crowd, those who act, and let's say cooking ability, because again, I like the idea of them bonding over food early on. The few details about her, I imagine, now riffing off of everything I've written so far, is certainly fuzzy on infidelity, <laughs> just kind of fuzzy on it, too slow to act at times, and insecure about being ignored or underappreciated, you know, and so if those are the flaws I'm, I'm riffing off of here, maybe the details that we have could be like she flirts to get attention with women only, and misses opportunities despite her attitude, re-going for it, because really her attitude helps paper over the fact that she misses opportunities. She's like, I'm just waiting for the right time. Sometimes does things for attention that she later regrets, okay? And uh, let's just say sometimes she scratches her arse too much, even wearing a hole in her pants. I don't know if I... See, I was just reading that off the page here. I don't know how I feel about that now. That's turning her a little too... I don't know. That feels like I'm mocking her, which I don't want to do. On the other hand... Can a character not scratch their arse? <laughs> so, hmm, I'll come back to that, but I, I'm leaning against it for now. It's interesting how that happens. You throw down stuff, and then later you're like, I like this character, though. <laughs> I'll put her through hell in the story, but I don't want to make her seem like a moron who scratches a hole in her pants. <laughs> Backstory, I don't really need much for this character. She's only around for one short story, so I just kind of plugged in here. Like, from a rural county, she volunteered when her lord demanded able bodies to fill out his foot soldiery. Mostly working night watch at his manor, she had time to slowly seduce and marry her wife, the Lord's Cook. See how we're building on the earlier stuff here, valuing cooking ability? Her brother, the scholar, ah, they're even tighter. Okay, her, the scholar is her brother, needed guards for his expedition, and she drew one of the short lots. Yeah, she doesn't really want to be here. <laughs> Plus, if the scholar is her brother, then I could see her being even more like, eh, not being so quick to admire him. <laughs> <laughs> it's a family member. He's always been around. I knew him when he used to bite his own toes and then get mad that somebody bit his toes, that kind of thing. But I guess he was the only he kicking around in the family uh, child level uh, because in psychology, I decided that she was raised one of a dozen sisters and she was desperate to stand out. Hence her volunteering for a life of soldiering and her insecurity. She was indeed often overlooked and confused with a similarly named sister so you see how like uh, one of the reasons i chose to do the character figuring out near the end and this is the second last thing i did um was because that way when i'm fleshing out this point of view character for the story i'm doing so while having all this knowledge of what the story is and about and what's going to happen and what i kind of need and want from my point of view character Anyway, final thing, religion, I just figured, you know, she would be a member of the contemporary version of the great gardening uh, mother uh, church that I was imagining Vo being a part of a offshoot of on the island. Honestly, though, I don't see it coming up in the story, which is why I didn't really write anything more. You know, religion's not a huge part of her days. Oh, and maybe she has some, just a random detail I put at the bottom here, has some pie her wife gave her. Yeah, that's just nice. I like her carrying that around with her, especially because this is like the old medieval pie where you generally didn't eat the crust as i understand it it was more like it was this really hard 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 version of what we imagine when we imagine pie crust that would hold the contents inside and keep it relatively edible for a long time so with all that done i felt like this story is ready to go now have i figured out every single little possible detail heck no but have i got enough that i could feel comfortable sitting down in scrivener is what i like to write in uh, but it could be word or anything else and actually writing the prose? Heck yeah. 
So as a quick piece of reference for myself, because my notes are kind of long-winded and messy and so on, even uh, more so than my description of them in this episode, I did a quick list of the broad beats of the story. What are the broad strokes? I came up with 11. One, finding Vo. Two, returning with Vo and impressing the lads with, you know, they don't have to be men, but you know what I mean? Like the the, the, the fellas, the guys, the, you know, the, the other soldiers uh, that are guarding the archaeological dig site. Then reporting to the scholar, um, but then that kind of pisses off the lads because then they see her trying to trade Vo, as it were, for prestige. They don't like that. Then uh, four, moving camp or setting up the dig site, something like that happening, I think, because I want it to be in progress. Five, keeping watch. Six, goon. Did you see a goon? Then beat seven, the attack, <laughs> right? The the burger sorcerer's goons. Eight, stopping the sorcerer. Nine, a time for reveals where, you know, they've stopped the sorcerer, not necessarily killed him, and we reveal, oh, actually, it's plumbing, and uh, the sorcerer is not really a sorcerer. He's a burger pretending to be a sorcerer. He's got money, and he was hoping to maybe become one with what he found. Okay, cool. Uh, ten, the woman at arms and scholar bond once she sees everything clearer and everyone more clearly. And finally, we tied off with, and now what of Vo? Where is she going to go from here? Great, now I can just reread that uh, and then go back through all my more detailed notes, all the little bits and pieces, most of which I've skipped over here because otherwise this episode would be way too long. Stuff like maybe, what if Vo tries to greet the woman at arms with the equivalent of a handshake or a bow, and the woman at arms doesn't know what to make of it? This puts Vo off, but then the woman at arms offers her food and a sip from her wineskin. Like, just notes like that that are just little bits and pieces and moments, right? Um, yeah, I will go back through those after checking this beat list so I can get the basic shape of it back into my head because at the end of all it, these little template things for these stories, I need to leave something easy for future me to kind of re-download it into their head. As ever, I'm trying, and I would certainly recommend others when they're writing try, to reduce friction, to reduce having to duplicate effort later in this case, and allow me to get to writing actual pages as quickly and easily as possible because Lord knows that can be difficult. All right, for anybody who wants to maybe take pieces of what I did or even take the whole thing, man, do whatever works for you, here's a ultra quick summary. Okay, how did Oliver outline the woman who floated through time? Well, he started with the image or whatever else, got him thinking about it first, then he just kind of brainstormed his way through figuring out who the point of view character would be. Then that took him to things like what are the cast? What are they wanting? Uh, is there a commonality amongst what they're wanting that I can turn into a theme? Figuring out things like central conflict, main cast, some basic events, some character arcs, and then a bit more brainstorming just around these lines till eventually I figured out a rough plot line you know i had an idea of what the beginning middle end would be which allowed me to then do the nuts and bolts of perspective tense point of view trajectory focus theme and thematic statement thematic statement to me is very important like what is the story saying right and that way everything you have happened in the story can argue for or against it or um different permutations of for and against it then i checked myself for is this just conflict or is there other stuff happening here working through that ursula kayla gwynn list of relating finding losing bearing discovering parting and changing then I did a bit more brainstorming, building on what I had, getting more specific moments for what happens in the tale until I felt comfortable with that, at which point I did a character breakdown of the point of view person, building off of everything I'd figured out so far, and using bits from the Creating Unforgettable Characters by Linda Seeger book. So yeah, so with that was, you know, uh, age, ethnicity, blah, 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 appearance, 
what do I know about them off the dome? And then the paradox, emotions, attitudes, values, details, backstory, psychology, and religion of her. Closing it all off with a quick piece of reference for future Oliver in the form of a broad strokes, you know, just one line per point list of the main beats of the story, which had about 11, but there was no magic number. I just was working my way through. And that's it. I would do more, but... I don't feel the need to because I feel ready to write this story, except I'm not going to write the story. I'm going to outline the whole novel, and from this point onward, I'm going to be outlining it in the linear order that the stories occur. Even though I want each of them to stand on their own, I like the idea of a sneaky continuity, like my original thing where I was going to have uh, the first story end with it being ambiguous what happens with Vo and Krog in the boat, and then have the beginning of the story be like, oh, <laughs> Krog didn't make it. <laughs> uh, so I might have opportunity for other moments like that that I wind up keeping. And also I've got to think about how Vo is changing as a person over the course of this whole thing because I want it to be about a very formative period in her life. I mean, 15 whole years, but still. So if I'm doing things like that in this order, well, the first story was Vo. The second story was The Woman Who Floated Through Time. The next story is kind of a war story, kind of some other stuff going on. That's where it started anyway. It started as a idea of me wanting to write something along the lines of a really cool battle from one of my favorite books I ever discovered at the Merrill Collection in Toronto, R.A. Lafferty's The Fall of Rome. More on that next time when I discuss with you the outlining of story number three, which currently is called Monstrously Slow. So I'm writing a novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>